You're listening to Firm Up, the fermented food podcast where we get together every week to discuss anything and everything fermented. This is episode 85, and I'm your host, Brandon, and I have a special guest slash substitute co-host on today. Uh, welcome to the show, Jason Spencer. What's happening, Brandon? Hey, it's great to have you here, and thank you so much for filling in. I think, you know, this is the first time there's been a, like a fill-in co-host, so this will be fun. Well, it's it's uh, definitely an honor, and uh, I've been listening to your podcast for a while and really appreciate the information you've been putting out there, and I am happy to be a part of this. I will we'll get into more of who Jason is in just a second, but uh, I just wanted to follow up real quick. Last episode, uh, Sanders' cabin, It's not he doesn't live there. It's not a cabin that he lives in. So I had someone write in that actually was at this residency, and so two major corrections. It was not a week. Some of his things do seem to be like closer to a week or two weeks, but this one is three weeks long that this uh, this person attended. And that sounds amazing. Are you familiar with uh, Sandor Katz's fermentation residencies in Tennessee? You know, I visited Sandor Katz's uh, website and took a look at it. It's, it sounds absolutely amazing. I mean, that guy just blows me away. He goes around and does presentations and workshops all over the country. He, uh, you know, he does those little, basically what he's doing at that cabin, he goes to uh, schools and they put together kind of a three-week course of their own for people to come in there and, and learn fermentation A to Z. Just, just powerful information. Yeah, I, I, it's definitely something on my list of things I would, I would love to do at some point. And, uh, and, and actually, uh, the person that, uh, that wrote in to, uh, offer these corrections about that, again, it's not, Sandra doesn't live in this, this cabin. It's actually a part of the foundation for fermentation fervor. But, uh, but Nash was the one to write in. And, uh, thank you to Nash for writing in. And he's also, um, said he's willing to come on the show. So probably sometime in November, he'll be on the show to talk about his experience. So that's going to be an awesome time. And in the meantime, if you are interested, uh, Nash is a, um, artist in New York and I'll put a link in the show notes, uh, at firmup.com slash podcast slash 85. And you can check out his, uh, website, but in right now, who is Jason Spencer? Who are you? Like what? I, I've been asking that for years. <laughs> So you're a Phoenix fermenter, but what, 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 how long have you been doing this? Or what do you, what, what's your story? What's your fermentation story? I'll, I'll, I'll try to keep this as short as I can. But uh, a couple years ago, I, uh, well, I've spent the last over 10 years in the uh, food industry and, and specifically um, I work for a food company on distribution. And so I've, I'm exposed to a lot of restaurants and a lot of different types of foods and food manufacturers. And, you know, it, it's as wonderful uh, as a career as that is, I always kind of left wanting a little bit more. And that led me towards uh, wanting to go back to school at night and do a holistic nutrition program here locally in Phoenix at the Southwestern Institute of Healing Arts. And it was kind of in that process that, you know, at, at the end of it, you know, you talk a lot about supplementation, you talk a lot about, you know, about those nutraceuticals out there. And at a certain point, I'm like, it's just about real food. And it just, I really became fascinated with the idea of fermentation, that that, that there's kind of this art this um, that we've lost, you know, and I, I think Sanders book, you know, the art of fermentation, but it's been lost. And, and I think there's, there's a real need for that revival. And it, it kind of offers this, that uh, ability to kind of reclaim foods from the food manufacturers that I think we sort of lost in the, uh, the industrial revolution um, and, and kind of reclaim some of these foods for ourselves. And they're also a lot more health beneficial. And so um, I've, uh, you know, I partner with, uh, with a local uh, health food chain, uh, Whole Foods, um, not really local, I guess they're national, and uh, been doing some workshops and presentations with those guys. And uh, 
you know, just started that out as, hey, would you guys be interested in this? And I've had just a tremendous response. And so it's it's really given me a lot of energy. And uh, I think that's kind of where I reached out to you. Hey, you know, Brandon, where can you, you know, do you have any advice for somebody that's just getting into this? And, and uh, you know, I'm kind of happy to, really happy just to, to, to be a part of this uh, uh, podcast today. So, well, how, what's, what is the, um, the feel in, in Phoenix regarding fermentation? Are there a lot of, you know, chefs and restaurants doing a lot with fermentation? Are there a lot of workshops? Well, it's interesting that you bring up the chef aspect. I was actually at uh, one of my local sports sports bars uh, last night. It's just kind of down the street and um, I struck up a conversation with the individual that sat next to me. He turns out he was a chef uh, cuisine at, uh, the, at the local uh, um, restaurant next door. And I got in a conversation um, with him about fermentation. And uh, so the health department's not so into it here in Phoenix. They actually make their own um, kimchi and some sauerkrauts, but they actually have to uh, hide it from the health department because if they leave anything out on the counter and it's in that critical zone, you know, this critical zone of, I think, 50 degrees to, you know, 100 and some degrees, if it's, if it's in that for a certain amount of time, then it's, then it's deemed to be um, spoiled. And uh, which you and I both know that if you, if you control the, the microbial, right, if you keep set the conditions, right, you're going to have fermentation. And, and I don't see there's nothing really more safe than that. Um, but they actually do their kimchi and they have to hide it in their wine cellar because that's the one place that the uh, the health inspector doesn't go. So I hope I'm not giving – I hope there's no health inspectors here in Phoenix that are listening. Um, I might be letting a cat out of the bag. I'm not sure. Well, as long as people don't know where you live and they don't know how close you are to this, this sports bar. Yeah, exactly. And and I'll, I'll keep that real vague. And Phoenix is a very large spread out place. So I'm probably not giving anything away. But so the so the, the sentiment, I guess, what you're asking, you know, with the local chefs, I know that there's there's a lot of interest. And since um, I've done some of these presentations uh, with the, the local Whole Foods here, um, we've had some some really, really, really great response. Um, the attendance has been standing room only at some of these and, um, you know, it's just kind of a, a vegetable fermentation 101 is, is really all that I'm putting out there. So there's a lot of people that are very curious about this and um, kind of surprising um, that uh, at some of the response that I've received with that. So it's I think there's there's a good level of interest, but I think it reflects an interest that you're seeing overall across the country. Yeah, I, I'm just surprised they're well, for one, I'm surprised by the the not surprised by the health department stuff, but am still surprised that uh, some health departments are still, you know, that, that not caught up to something like that. But at the same time, I'm surprised that with uh, Phoenix, you know, what, what's the size of Phoenix? Do you know offhand roughly? I think in, uh, in, and I'll say it's Maricopa County, which our counties are like the size of Rhode Island. We got very large counties here in Arizona. Um, I think the population is somewhere upwards of four to four and a half million something like that. And it's very, very spread out. I mean, we are, it's, you can drive an hour and you're still in the city here. So not quite LA ish, but, uh, but we're getting there with, they just keep spreading the city out. So yeah, I'm just surprised then with something uh, that ours that there, there wouldn't already be more, but I mean, it sounds like you're in a great place and people are hungry for this stuff. So that's, 
that's great that you're there providing it for them. Yeah, I'll add one last thing from what the chef told me. So they can they can get a variance, what do you call it, a variance on this if they put together a HACCP program for that. So I'm almost not, not 100% sure, but they might have to go through someone independent or they have to put so, together some sort of HACCP program that shows that through these key you know steps that the food is safe for uh, for consumption. Wow, I would hope that it would be a little easier for something that's so uh, proven to be safe uh, that it wouldn't be as difficult to get through a HACCP plan. But at the same time, as far as I know, a lot of HACCP plans, it's kind of expensive to do that, which seems silly for something like vegetable fermentation. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, we should probably get in a little bit to what our our topic is for today. I kind of threw out the idea to you that we can do, we can talk about whatever is kind of of interest to you at this point, what you'd like to talk about, because we'll just kind of use this time as a, as a time to discuss one topic. So what is it about um, starter cultures versus wild fermentation? What is it about that that uh, piques your interest right now? Well, and I think when you had, had, had broached me, you know, what subject would you like to talk about? I had just done a presentation, and that seemed to be like a lot of confusion um, with the with the people that I was presenting to, because I was talking about starter cultures. I was talking about things about making a ginger bug, about using a scoby, like a kombucha scoby, um, using whey as fermentation. But I was also, you know, putting out there that you know, st- salt using salt is sort of like using a starter. Um, and maybe it is, maybe, you know, you could, you can kind of dice that up any way you want, but salt, as you and I both know, is, is just kind of, it, it helps to inhibit that growth of non-beneficial bacteria, the more opportunistic, um, bacteria and allows the, the beneficial bacteria that's already present to transform the foods through anaerobic fermentation, uh, anaerobic without oxygen. And uh, that always seems to cause a lot of confusion because people, I think they, they, they can't quite understand that the bacteria that we want, the, you know, the acidophilus uh, bacteria that you have in milk, that is present. It's everywhere around us, that is on the vegetables um, already there. It's just waiting to do its job. Yeah, and uh, your your mention of salt actually made me think of two. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, – there was just not too long ago something about like sea salt, uh, the microbes that are even uh, in the sea salt itself. So if you're using a, a non-refined sea salt, you're getting microbes there too. I mean these microbes are everywhere. And so yeah, like the idea of wild fermentation, it, you don't really need a starter and we're just creating it in the proper environment and allowing the, the specific microbes the chance to flourish. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, even when we're talking about the spontaneous uh, fermentation, the wild fermentation versus the starter cultures, even a lot of what we define as a starter culture started out as a spontaneous and wild fermentation. It's just been harvested and cultured and repeated. Exactly. Yeah, I think that maybe we should step back for anyone that's not exactly familiar about like this whole uh, starter culture versus uh, non-start wild fermentation, spontaneous fermentation. So like kind of how I look at it, and I'll be interested to hear if you have any differentiation here with starter cultures, it's kind of breaking it down. There are a few different things. So if we're going to talk about vegetables, starter culture would be say adding something, you know, like you mentioned uh, whey or uh, salt brine from a previous, previous batch of vegetables or some of these commercial starter cultures. And I'd like to get into that a little bit, talking about about these commercial starter cultures and if they're worth purchasing and using. But before that, it's just so we have we have that side of things where you put something else other than salt and vegetables. 
in a starter and then are in a vegetable ferment, or you have just wild fermentation. It's a spontaneous fermentation using the inherent microbes on the vegetables, on the preparer's hands, in the environment, and using those um, creating that environment, we're just using the microbes that are just there and they're doing their thing based on the environment we create. We create it so it's the salt brine and it's going to very quickly, the first microbes that get in there are going to create an environment that's a little bit more acidic. So not only is it acidic, it's also salty. So there are very few microbes that can survive that except for the lactic acid bacteria that we want. So it's already just built to kind of do this thing and that's why it works spontaneously. And And then at the same time, we have Outside of vegetables, we have starter cultures. Some things kind of need them. I mean, kombucha with the SCOBY, that symbiotic colony of bacteria and yeast, we kind of need that uh, that starter culture, those microbes that have been uh, cultivated throughout history to create this specific beverage. That is a starter culture, but it's kind of different than, say, for vegetables, where you don't need a starter culture, whereas kombucha, you do. And the same with yogurts you need a starter culture to create some of the same yogurts and inoculating them with previous batches of yogurt whereas you can take raw milk and clabber it and make a soured milk beverage but it's not going to be a the same thing so sometimes a starter culture is used for consistency and so there are plenty of things and plenty of different tangents we could take on starter cultures but i think starting first just with with vegetables did that kind of uh, description fit with where you see these things in regard to vegetable fermentation Absolutely. I think I think you explained it uh, very succinctly. The only thing I would add to that, and this is one of the things I try to drive home um, to the, the fermenters at the presentations, is that there's two different types of fermentation that um, we're, we're kind of working you know, with here. There's a aerobic and an anaerobic. Um, the aerobic would be with oxygen, the anaerobic without oxygen. And when we're talking about vegetable fermentation, we're, we're talking about an anaerobic environment without oxygen. And you can simply do that by just submerging your vegetables in a salt brine that salt will inhibit the growth you know maybe the surface growth of any type of molds which would be more of that aerobic fermentation and then while that's submerged in that brine or its own juices like in sauerkraut when you kind of use the salt to pull out some of those juices then you're going to be promoting that anaerobic fermentation which is going to be like you said those lactic acid bacteria those those acid producing bacteria which which, you know, they, they create an environment that not even like botulinum can can exist in. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about fermentation that makes it so ideal is it's very safe. Yeah. I mean, uh, one of the spokespeople for the USDA, I mean, says specifically that there has never been a cited case of food poisoning in the United States from fermented vegetables. And we hear regularly about the poison or, or food poisoning that comes from uh, say fresh vegetables or fresh produce of, of some sorts or another. Like when something gets contaminated, even arguably if you have a contaminated piece of vegetable, once it goes through that fermentation process, if you go, if you're not doing like a really short fermentation process, it's most likely going to still be safe to eat. Um, now I wouldn't purposely go out and do that unless you're going to also test it, but that's really the reality is that this is not an environment that other competing and uh, food poisoning causing bacteria microbes can really live in. Yeah, it's, it's about the environment. I know, you know, you look at those cases of spinach 
um, a few years ago in which I think uh, some of these fields of spinach, and of course this is my world, you know, in the, the food distribution, but you, you have these fields of spinach that are downstream from these um, uh, mega uh, farms, you know, these, the, the cattle lots or feedlots or whatever. And so the, the runoff and some of the water coming down through there had E. coli in there. Well, what happens is that's harvested. And if it's just a minute amount gets on that actual spinach, when they batch all that and bring it together and process that and then bag that up individually, they create that environment that just promotes the uh, proliferation of that bacteria to where all of that product is potentially contaminated at that point. Um, where, you know, fermentation, you know, you create those, those acids and those batches and uh, it kills that stuff off. Yeah. I mean, it's again, it just, I keep hearing the repetition. It's environment, environment, environment. Once we create a specific environment, if it's the right kind of environment, we're going to get something good. If it's the wrong kind of environment uh, from our perspective, then we're going to get some nasty microbes. So then that really brings up the question of, Okay, so that seems kind of uh, scary. Like, I don't want like microbes that are going to uh, cause me harm, like the fresh spinach issue. But like we're talking about creating the proper environment, there is no fear or reason to be scared. But then, why would people use these um, these commercial starter cultures? Um, as far as I understand, you haven't used these, correct? No, and and we're specifically talking about um, starter cultures uh, that maybe they've they've done and. And I, be honest with you, I don't know details about these, but my assumption is is that they've taken some sort of brine solution from a previous fermentation, and then they've um, made a concentrate out of that, or they've isolated those bacteria and made a concentrate out of that. Is 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 that? kind of what they are as far as i understand uh, i mean i i guess if anyone has heard of any of these starter cultures we're talking about things like caldwell's body ecology and uh, then dr marcola also has a new kinetic culture starter culture out and so these ones is yeah as far as i know i don't know exactly what their process is to get to the microbes but they're talking sure. about specific microbes that they have there and i'm assuming it's similar to say direct set starter cultures in yogurt and uh, cheese making their little um, maybe freeze-dried packages of uh, isolated strains uh, specific for vegetable fermentation as opposed to say for dairy yeah and when i when I kind of relate this to is is uh using whey um the liquid that you would extract from a yogurt, a kefir, some sort of clabbered milk, you would separate that whey from that clabbered milk and um curdled milk and and you would have essentially a, a liquid brine that would be just teeming with uh, the, the yeast and bacteria that you want to add into whatever ferment that you have. Um, I know that that's kind of an idea that's been real popularized um, uh, through Sally Fallon's book, Nourishing Traditions. Um, and she has on there that is typically optional in there. But, um, you know, adding that uh, whey as a starter um, to create the, the fermentation environment. And in some cases, I th I, I th it's a necessary process. Um, as you and I were talking before we started, um, for instance, if you wanted to do a pickled beet, like we would typically see like a pickled beet like in the cans, it's going to be nice and soft and tender. Well, you had have to cook that beet prior to starting the fermentation. And that means that you would be um, killing off any uh, bacteria that would be present. So you have to add a bacteria to that, the bacteria that we want. You would have to add that starter to that to, to get the pickling process. Which actually sounds great. And I actually hadn't thought about that because I've been a pretty 
um, strong believer in, in no way. And it's just, it's not really something that I've liked. I've tried it before and I haven't really say in, um, in vegetable fermentation and I haven't necessarily liked the results. And I've kind of equated that to partly because we're dealing with slightly different lactic acid bacteria, lactic acid bacteria from, from dairy fermentation and lactic acid bacteria from vegetable ferment, natural, uh, spontaneous vegetable fermentation are going to be uh, different in many cases. And so the idea of using one substrate and putting, uh, and then using those microbes in a different substrate to me always just seemed a little weird. And, uh, sometimes I just didn't get the same quality results that I would without it. But then when you're talking about something like this, that actually makes a lot of sense. If you're dealing with a, uh, in essence, pasteurized product substrate, then it makes sense that you, you are going to have to inoculate that. Otherwise it you know, you may not get a ferment. Yeah. And I, and one of the uses that I make it for, and, and when I make this, people, people just love this. I make a cream soda, which is just so easy. It's just uh, a little bit of a, a cinnamon stick, uh, vanilla beans, some sugar and water. And, um, you know, you make a syrup and, and add, uh, kind of dilute it a little bit. And then I will use whey because it's, it's generally flavorless. You know, you can maybe use like a ginger bug, but you're going to get some of that ginger um, flavor in there. And um, I'll just use, a, you know, maybe a quarter cup of whey per liter um, of, of cream soda and use that as a fermentation and you get that really nice carbonation. It, it chews up some of that sugar that's in there. So it's a little, it's a little less sweet and uh, just makes a, a really great probiotic beverage that, um, you know, when you introduce fermentation to people and you say, this is a, this is a fermented food item, they're, they're just blown away. Soda, it's fermented. Yeah, I mean, it's it's awesome to get a naturally carbonated beverage. I'm not actually, I've never tried whey in any uh, beverages. So how long is that fermentation process? Um, t- typically what you would you would have with others, um, I think it's, and, and it depends, you know, upon the um, temperature, you know, the ambient temperature. But um, I would say typically from three to five days, you know, it's one of those things you got to check. Because uh, you know, I made uh, I made a bunch of ginger brew, and and I thought, well, I'll let it go another day. And then I tried one, and of course, it it was it was almost ready to explode. So it's in the refrigerator now. Um, but I've seen I've seen with that with the way it takes a little bit longer than you would with some other spontaneous fermentations. Maybe it's kind of that process of these these microbes being like, wait a minute, I'm not in digesting lactose anymore. What's yes. going on? Yes. What, what am I in this sugary solution for? But I like it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I'm actually going to have to try that because um, I think that that is one way that people can get into uh, fermented beverages that don't require something. I guess it requires a the starter of whey, but it's depending on where someone lives, depending on what resources they have, whey is much easier to come by than, uh, than other things. Or even if someone wants to make their own, uh, strained yogurt, then they can easily get the whey from that. So anyone has access to whey. Some of these other starter cultures like ginger beer plant and water, uh, kefir and, um, kombucha scobies, you know, takes a little bit more effort to find. So I like that yeah. idea. Yeah, there's lots of ways to uh, to do fermentation. So I, I will try to uh, I will try to open uh, some place in my heart for whey again. I will give it another chance. <laughs> well, you so. make a bunch of yogurt, so I figured that might be something that you were you were looking at doing. You could you know you kind of separate that whey, and you have more of a Greek yogurt style yogurt, which is something that I generally don't do often unless I'm kind of doing some kind of spread or or whatnot because I don't like that that waste of the whey because I generally. I don't, I just haven't had a whole lot of uh, use for it other than say drinking it, but 
that's one aspect where being lactose intolerant, if there, it seems that more, the lactose is more likely to go with the way, um, at least it, it, it's upset my stomach before more so than yeah. just say yogurt when it's mixed in, even if the whey is in there still. Sure. And I'm, and I'm glad you kind of mentioned that with the lactose intolerant. I think that's, that's where in some of the presentations, when I talk about using whey as a uh, starter culture, I get a lot of people that start raising their hands and they're like, I'm a vegan of 10 years. You know, I'm a vegetarian. You know, I don't do dairy. I don't do these things. And I think that's when we were talking about some of these vegetable starters. I think that's where that marketplace might exist for those. Um, at this idea that, that um, to use that uh, without using whey, you're using something that's going to fit into that um, that framework of being you know, vegan, um, vegetarian, that type of thing. Well, and I still go back to just do the spontaneous fermentation. If someone for some reason wants to use a starter, uh, then you could just ferment once, risk it once. Uh, and uh, ferment spontaneously. Do a wild ferment and then use a backslop, the brine from that, if someone really wants to to do that. And I would like to, um, after talking about some of these different, uh, why I wouldn't use these starter cultures, um, some of the uh, the ideas of maybe why not even to jumpstart a ferment with uh, even brine. Um, but getting into these, uh, these Caldwells, this body ecology, different things like that, the first thing I noticed about, say, Caldwell brand exactly, I'll put a link to a YouTube video, they, they go over some nice things about fermentation, but looking at the actual directions for using the starter, it's, it, it's a powder that gets mixed in with water and it's something like a cup of water or whatnot. And I'm uh, for in the, the example was making sauerkraut. If it's going to be a water brine, uh, a water salt brine, that's totally fine. But for something like sauerkraut, I don't know about you, but I like to massage or tamp that until all of the juice is just leached out of there from the salt and from breaking those cellular walls. I want the juice and the flavor from the cabbage itself. Whereas adding like a cup or two of water on top of that is just, it's just plain water. So that alone is a reason why I wouldn't want to add the Caldwell brand. Um, do yes, you, do you add water? Um, the only time that I'll actually use water and I'll make a salt brine is if, um, when I get that packed in there, I don't think I have enough of that barrier at the top of my fermentation vessel vessel to promote that anaerobic fermentation. That's when I'll add a little bit of a salt brine, but in this case, yeah, a cup of water to mix in there. Um, you know, it depends what your batch is, but it it seems, it seems you get a lot of you can pull a lot of water out of cabbage. It will amaze people. Yeah. And I think like, that's what I always tell people. It's like, if you don't have enough water, now I have had cabbage if, if it's not as fresh or, or it's certain varieties don't have as much uh, juice in them. But uh, in general, it's like, if it's not covering it, then next time massage it more. Just don't give up until that thing is just dripping because yeah, it's amazing how, uh, for one, how condensed it gets. Um, oh yeah. Uh, because at first, like I know people sometimes see the, the chopped vegetables, like they're like, that's all going to fit inside of a quart jar. Uh, it definitely does once you massage it enough and then that juice just covers it. So yes, obviously add water if to create that anaerobic environment. But yeah, the, I don't see a reason if someone's doing fermented, other fermented vegetables. Sure. The Caldwell one would seem fine. Now there is the body ecology, which seemed even, uh, not weirder to me, but it's actually using a microbe which is the second fermenter, the main fermenter, uh, I guess stepping back there are, and I don't know if, if you have any thoughts or, or experience with the, the stages of fermentation specifically with sauerkraut, it's 
probably the best studied um, English example of of a fermented industrial vegetable. It's uh, they go through different stages. The first stage is uh, Leuconostoc mesenteroides, and it's the one that creates some of the first acidity. And, um, but it doesn't actually last very long in that acidity. And then L plantarum jumps in and it's the one that's going to create a lot of, of the acidity, carbon, um, uh, carbon dioxide. And so that's where you start getting a lot of those bubbles is after the first few days of fermentation. And so this one is skipping that first step, which arguably creates a little complexity in flavor. It's skipping that step and going straight to the second one. So it's inoculating it with the, the real powerhouse that's going to just start fermenting. But it starts by, again, mixing a little water, not as much as the Caldwell brand, but it says mix it with sugar and let it sit for 20 minutes, which to me already that's starting to sound like a lot of work, let alone really I've, I've got to use another product and let it sit for 20 minutes. I know it's not really a big deal, but at the same time, I mean, it, it, I don't have to wait at all if I don't use it. Yeah, that's an that's an interesting one there. I always kind of try to explain to people that when you're looking at something like a sauerkraut, the type of bacteria, they're all f- basically from that same family, but it's kind of the spectrum that you have of of different types of substrate ones that are going to be dominant and then they kind of die off and other ones kind of come present and stuff so that you know, um, through the different stages of age and stuff, you're going to get those different type of flavors um, and I guess potentially health benefits with the different type of bacteria um, if if uh, that's what you're seeking as well. But in this case, I I, um, I, I haven't seen this product. So that's, that's very curious to me. I'd, I'd love to kind of experiment with that and see what type of fermentation you would get out of that and how that would differ from, as we've been talking about, a spontaneous or wild fermentation. Yeah, it seems like the end product most of the time appears to be rather similar. The main difference that I've been able to find in, uh, in any studies that have focused on this kind of thing is a quicker drop in pH. Or the ability to, uh, and or the ability to use less salt. Because again, the salt is part of creating that environment that is only going to work for these lactic acid bacteria. But by uh, one example article I'll put in the, the show notes, this is not looking at these specific uh, kind of public or, or average person commercial products. I mean, we're talking about for industrial use, uh, starter cultures. Looking at those, um, Again, using uh, Leuconostoc mesenteroides, the one that starts it, starting with that one, so jump-starting it with the first microbe that would start the process, can actually cut the salt by as much as half. But the reason for this study is not so much for uh, any like uh, sodium-conscious consumers. It's for the waste products of creating large amounts of sauerkraut in industrial scale creates a lot of waste salt brine. And so by being able to cut that salt down there is it's easier to process that and less waste so it seems like a good thing in that regard to a certain extent i'm i'm just impressed that you can actually say that lacana stock mina say that again i and i would not say that i necessarily say these things correct but lacana <laughs> stock mesenteroides is how i pronounce it's, it it sounds really good to me yeah that's just just uh, my thing that I always make sure if I'm going to go into a workshop or talk on here and there's a word that I really have no for sure how to say it because most, most things, especially science articles, I'll read 
and I just kind of like, I recognize it and kind of skip over it, but I don't necessarily even sound it out in my head. So when I actually know I'm going to have to say something out loud, YouTube and anywhere else that I can actually hear someone saying something. And then if, if someone else has said it, then I know at least there's other people that are pronouncing it that way, even if it's not the only way. I would have to stand in front of the mirror and like have to practice that for a half hour before I'd even be comfortable with just throwing that out there. But uh, yeah, YouTube, I mean, hopefully they're pronouncing it correctly. Yeah, I mean, plenty of mixed stuff on YouTube, but I try and find legitimate stuff as much as possible. But um, yeah, I mean, so yeah, there is no reason to actually know exactly what microbes are involved. The only reason why I think it's important is to know which ones are being used for the starter culture um, and, and starting at different levels it is going to change the flavor a little bit, whether or not in a blind tasting, I would even necessarily be able to tell. I don't know. I'm just really happy with the way that my, uh, my wild ferments go. I think it would be a, like you were talking about a great experiment though, to try, um, yeah. line up some of these different, uh, publicly available starter cultures and, uh, do multiple batches of each and, uh, then do blind tastings. Yeah. See if, see if you could tell any difference. You know, as we kind of talk about this, it kind of makes me, um, this recent book that I was reading, it's uh, probiotic foods, uh, for, uh, gut health. And, um, it, it, it sort of makes me think about the story about how, um, the industry began to isolate the bacteria that were present in yogurts. And it was specifically, they wanted to patent these type of bacteria and create these proprietary strains, um, uh, so that they could, I guess, kind of corner and stuff. But one of the, one of the um, foods that they tried to develop and market out there was called an um, a acidophilus milk. And, um, you, you know, they isolated acidophilus and, and um, it created this product. You know, they had a pasteurized milk and then they would introduce the acidophilus. They had trouble with it being a little too um, tart for, for consumption. But I think they finally... Um, you know, figured out a way to develop this this sweet type of milk, and they marketed it as sweet acidophilus milk. And it just sort of reminds me, you know, of of what uh, these manufacturers are are essentially attempting to do is kind of isolate this very specific one type of strain of Lactobacillus bacteria, and then market that as the type of strain that you want to add in there, and and uh, try uh, try to make a dollar. And that's, that's where it really comes down to for me. I mean, these things aren't super expensive, but they're not exactly cheap either. And to me, it seems like just if a person has money to throw into uh, uh, feeling better about maybe what they're doing with their foods they're making at home, then sure, go ahead and spend the money. If it makes a person feel safer or, uh, or whatever the reason, I mean, I think a lot of the reason why they, um, how they're promoted is for safety because they're saying you don't know what you're going to get if you don't use these starter cultures. I mean, I, I know I'm going to get something that's delicious and edible uh, and, and not going to, to kill my family. So like, I'm not concerned about that. So for people that are sure spend the, uh, you know, I arguably kind of waste the money on it. If that's, if that's the reason, if there are other reasons that I, you know, have not been able to find about this, I would love to hear what other people think of these starter cultures, if you use them or different things like that. But other than that, I would just say for anyone that hasn't tried them, keep doing it the way you're doing it. Otherwise, um, you know, experiment, do some blind tastes and, and tell us what, what works for you. Um, I, I think that it is, um, that acidophilus milk that you're talking about. Yep. I, is that something that's in the United States marketed in the United States? 
It's um, from what I read about it, it seems like it's something that's kind of fallen off Um, what they ran into. What was kind of interesting about this is, is it was being promoted by manufacturers and dairy as having all these type of health benefits. But the, uh, the FDA came in and filed a bunch of claims and levied some fines against these manufacturers because what they were promoting as health enhancing, they didn't really have anything to back that up. Um, so they, they said it was misleading. Um, it was unsubs- unsupported and uh, inaccurate, and they had to remove a lot of the health claims off of there. Now, it did get some traction, but without that sort of health claim that they were making, um, a lot of people didn't have a lot of interest in that. So um, there's I think since then, um, there's been a lot more – um, studies, clinical trials that have had have gone on with yogurts and, and dairy fermentation um, that uh, that they can probably substantiate a lot of those claims. But you know, like when we talk about with vegetable fermentation, you know, there's no such thing as a cabbage board that's going to have money to to throw at clinical studies on sauerkraut. Uh, exactly. Yeah, that's that's where it definitely becomes a challenge to find out what is the reality with this if you're looking for uh, research to back it up. Um, and specifically with that is acidophilus milk that I, uh, I, they do market it in, I know at least Croatia because my wife's from Croatia. Last time we were over there, I definitely saw it, but the, the fermented dairy sections in grocery stores are not like the fermented dairy sections in the United States, most places where it's mostly, um, sweetened yogurts and different things like that. Over oh, yeah. there, it's uh, uh, plain kefir. It's uh, acidophilus milk, It's which is very tart, like you're describing. I mean, it's mm-hmm. – uh, and uh, I think it's delicious. But uh, – and it's just all of these plain yogurts. There really are very few examples in most grocery stores of a flavored yogurt. So it makes sense why it would work a lot more over there. And uh, I really thought it was interesting. I liked it, but I could see why it's not like a main product here, which is, again, a great reason why people can ferment things at home themselves because not everything is palatable by the general consumer. Absolutely. So let's get a little bit more into this like uh, like backslopping thing, though, because I really I do like the idea of uh, these different cooked products that you're talking or semi cooked products. Do you have any other examples of like, say, those cooked beets or whatnot where or blanching of things? Well, like if you were to uh, to make like a pearl, you know, if you want to do like a pickled pearl onions or if you wanted to make um, some other type of blend, um, like even like a relish or like a fermented ketchup. Uh, sometimes I make like a different type of mayonnaises and those type of things that I'll actually ferment. Salad dressings, those type of things. Like these – when you kind of get into this condiment sphere – you know, you're kind of taking a product that we would normally associate, um, you know, you would buy off the, the shelf in the, the aisle, but it would be something that's shelf stable. A lot of times what's making that a shelf stable item is the fact that, um, well, A, they've pasteurized it, but they're using, you know, preservatives or they're using sugar because sugar will kind of uh, act as a water inhibitor and it will inhibit any type of bacterial growth. Um, where we can take those same type of items, we can kind of, you know, I guess reclaim some of those foods as our own and make them fermented. Um, but you would have to use some sort of starter for those. And so I think that's where there's a good place for this. Um, but you could also use, as you're kind of referring to as a backslopping, you know, the, the sauerkraut that I have sitting in my fridge, I could take that out and strain and get a lot of that liquid and use a very small amount of that um, sauerkraut liquid or kimchi liquid to use as a starter for those same um, foods that I was talking about. Yeah. And, and if a person isn't going to do that with the, the sauerkraut uh, brine, they work great as just shots of deliciousness as well. 
Sure. I don't know if you've ever shot those. I, I actually oh, saw. Absolutely, yeah. There is. I forget uh, which location it is, but I know there's one place I, I I've, I've seen a few times on Instagram where they do uh, shots at the farmers market, which just seems brilliant for people that aren't familiar with how delicious that vegetable brine shots can be. Yeah, well, I've I've got a couple. Um, I've got a cordito in there that I'm really curious. I want to make like a bloody mary with. <laughs> so oh, definitely. Add, add a little uh, little vodka, Worcestershire, you know, a celery stick, and and see how that goes. But I haven't quite been that adventurous yet. I wonder. It's like uh, because I know like I way another time where I see that are in say uh, salsa. So I would assume you could probably make a bloody mary, uh, yeah. a tomato mix, totally fermented as well with whey. Yeah, or or you know use kimchi for yeah, it. Well, that, like that is too. be even better. Yeah, yeah. There, there you go. Talk talk to some of the local um, bars in your area and get them to start making some uh, kimchi cocktails. Yeah, I'll just bring I'll bring the kimchi in. I'm like, guys, just put that back there. <laughs> <laughs> Hide this away in your wine here's, cellar. Here's here's my tab. You know, here's here's fifty dollars. Let's go. Yep. <laughs> That's uh, that sounds uh, sounds delicious. So, would you say that there's um, anything that we you know haven't covered that comes up in your your kind of classes with this kind of? Do you feel like we've made things more clear, uh, more confusing? I, yeah, we probably confuse people <laughs> even more here. I, but, um, I I I think we're doing a pretty good job of kind of explaining that there's there's a difference between the spontaneous and then using a starter culture, and there's a there's always a place and time for it. You know, when you're talking about fresh vegetables and you're looking to do uh, a fermentation, you know, by all means promote that spontaneous, that wild fermentation. But then there may be um, you know opportunities where you want to get a little bit more into food stuff like food products, like making a ketchup or a mustard and you want to make that more of a probiotic type of food, you would need to use um, either like a back slopping like the brine or maybe whey as a starter or one of these commercially available um, vegetable starters for that. Um, and again, I guess the other thing that we didn't really touch too much on is, is and this is one of the things I talk about with starters, uh, is when we talk about like kombucha with scobies, um, you know, water key for those type of things. I guess technically those would be a starter, um, but those are also an example of uh, like a spontaneous wild fermentation that we're just we're just replicating. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, so much of say kombucha, there are uh, certain theories that it's just uh, a vinegar mother that happened to go in a slightly different um, substrate and, and does really well in that. But um, some people even argue that it's possible to take a vinegar mother. I mean, for anyone that's not familiar with the vinegar making process, it will um, uh, grow a same kind of cellulose mat on top when making vinegar as kombucha does, but they're generally uh, fermenting different substrates. So like a fully sugary beverage versus a uh, tea and sugar uh, beverage. And so like there are, you know, different thoughts on, on where kombucha came from, but like you're talking about, it would have at one time had to have been spontaneous and maybe, you know, like say with yogurt, something got in like a, a, a plant of some sort, uh, contaminated a batch of soured milk that then thickened just right. And then they were able to backslop ever since, but mm-hmm. yeah, all these things started as wild ferments. 
Yeah, I had I, uh, one of my presentation. I had a gentleman that I he was probably in his 80s, and he told me when he was growing up, they had a wood bucket that they kept behind the wood burning or the the stove, uh, the the big stove that they had, the iron stove that they had, and that's where they made their yogurt. And they didn't have to add any type of starter cultures; they just kept adding milk into that, which is kind of that spontaneous fermentation. But once that's there and the bacteria is there, all they have to do is just keep adding milk to that, and it would just keep making yogurt for them. And I always thought that was really fascinating that uh, that uh, he's you know kind of grew up and you know the the idea of yogurt being something so complex and exotic it's you know they would just put milk in the bucket and set it behind the stove and then you add yogurt, which is why I think a lot of people. Uh once I start talking to them about the different ways to make yogurt, the countertop yogurts, the mesophilic ones where it can, it's room temperature. You don't have to heat it up and do all these steps that are very complicated where you're talking about, well, it doesn't even have to be complicated with the thermophilic yogurts, like the commercial yogurt that everyone's familiar with. Like it can be as easy as that. And most likely it was back in the day. Um, and it's the same way with, uh, with butter, cultured butter. I mean, traditionally being, uh, at, at least in one tradition of putting them in the wooden butter churns, you just slop all the, the cream into there until it's full and then, uh, uh, culture, whip it into, into butter and, or turn it into butter. And then that's just lined with microbes as well as the microbes that are just sitting at the bottom of, of there with any leftover cream, just like that bucket. You just keep putting more in. It's not cleaned. It's just, it's always getting, an, uh, inoculated by just what's in there. Yeah, and, and and I think this, and that's one of the things that uh, it's so fascinating, but it's so interesting. This long term relationship that we've had with the microbial in our environment, to, in in now this whole today, we want to sanitize everything, and everything has to be sterile. And and uh, you know, you look at like the hospitals; they have some of the the biggest bacterial breakouts because everything's sanitized there. Um, you know, and there's a there's a place for it, of course, but. Um, you know the the idea that you know you're gonna you're gonna create some sort of bad food system if if everything's not completely sanitized is um, not proven by history. Exactly. I mean, I, I and, and raw milk is something I know is a touchy subject sometimes with uh, with some people, but like that is one of those examples, like the the butter churn or just milk in general. I mean. Before there was refrigeration, sure there were ice boxes and different ways of keeping things cool in some regions, but there wasn't this like cold chain from farm to person consuming milk. I mean, people consumed an already fermented beverage. They consumed soured uh, milk. Most people weren't getting the fresh milk unless they had their own cows or, or sheep or goats. So yeah. this idea that that milk is inherently a uh, um, something that is going to spoil is mainly something that's come out of either sick animals being milked yep. or it's from the pasteurization process, which is again, sterilizing or wiping out most of the microbes that are in there and leaving it like a fair game for any microbe to take over. Whereas otherwise there are the lactic acid bacteria just in the environment from the teats of the animal on the hands of the person milking. You know, it's inherently for some reason, these microbes have just have the symbiotic relationship that works out in everyone's favor. Yeah. It's almost this relationship, you know, when you talk something, you know, talk something about uh, specifically about milk, um, it's almost kind of that relationship that uh, helps to kind of enhance and preserve that milk over long term, that those bacteria would be present to clabber that milk, um, to create your yogurts, to have that type of opportunity to make that a fermented item where, you know, you take a pasteurized milk and you take a raw milk, you let the two of them sit out. One of them's going to sour, the other one's going to putrefy. And one's going to be undrinkable, and that would be the pasteurized milk. 
Exactly. And, and I think the other thing that is, uh, is worth considering at least, I mean, even, even the few cases of, of raw milk, um, poisonings and different things we see, it's taking still uh, something that I think about a lot is like using current mindset around milk for a previous uh, product of being raw milk. I mean, it's still using refrigeration, doing all those things, which may have a very valid reason to do that. But at the same time, um, again, most people weren't drinking fresh raw milk so or refrigerated raw milk. They were drinking soured milk no matter what. So even if a person, those people that have gotten sick from raw milk, arguably probably wouldn't. And I'm not saying for sure they wouldn't, but they probably wouldn't if they had just left that out and it had never been refrigerated. It would have just soured. Yeah. Um, and if it didn't sour, it would have spoiled and been very obvious. There's a yes. definite difference. Big, big difference. I, I always get a kick. Um, usually someone will ask a, a question and, and it's specifically with like milk kefir and they'll ask, so is it better to use raw milk or pasteurized milk? And my answer always is, well, we only been pasteurizing milk for about the last 50 to 60 years. So I'd say raw milk. It's real happy in raw milk. It is. And it's kombucha and, and, and not kombucha, but kefir. It's like 10,000 years old. Yeah. Uh, kefir grains, they definitely seem to be one that is a lot. Uh, it's probably the best one to use in raw milk. It seems the one that's the most hardy. And uh, like some of the other heirloom yogurts, some of them can't hold up against the, the native lactic acid bacteria and they kind of fall apart. And I think some of that, some of that goes back to the idea of where were these microbes at a different time? I mean, we live in a different microbial world now than we did um, at, at different times when some of these heirloom yogurts from Finland and uh, Georgia and different places they came about. And the, our ancestors had different microbes and they were uh, treating these animals uh, differently. And so, uh, and these yogurts came from these regions. So there are many things that might be different now, even if a person's getting raw milk, it may not be the same kind of microbial composition that so worked so well with raw milk at one point, or maybe still does in, in certain environments, but maybe in the United States outside of its normal realm, sometimes it just doesn't uh, stay a consistent, strong culture. It doesn't mean that it won't turn into something that can can't be continued to be backslot, but it might not be what the person wants. Um, but kefir grains, they definitely seem to be the one that like they can hold up a lot better. And some of that might be just those, uh, the, the grains that are, um, actually there that it just, it, it might just be a stronger inoculation. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, to kind of, uh, add on a little bit to what you were speaking in, in regards to like environment, you know, the environment is so key. Um, you know, I was into beer fermentation for years. And one of the things that always kind of fascinated me is when you look at specific type of breweries, you have all the different types of beers that they're making, but there's always sort of this congruity of flavor between all of them. And that has to do with the yeast because they're reculturing and using the same type of yeast throughout all their fermentations, if it's ales or lagers and that yeast yeast begins to take on characteristics of its environment, which, uh, which kind of keeps that flavor congruent through those different types of beers. I always found that uh, very interesting. Yeah, there is a lot that I think that, um, that people forget about how powerful these microbes are and how adaptable they are. And so I, I argue that with, with all of this kind of, uh, wrapping up this kind of part of the discussion is like, for me, like wild and spontaneous fermentation, is what I choose because I want to see what these microbes can do on their own without me interfering more than just saying, Hey, here's a nice home for you. Make it uh, delicious. Do you have any other closing thoughts on, on that aspect before we get into the, the events section where we can talk about all these awesome events coming up? No, I think I've, I think I've given my all here. Awesome. Well then uh, this event section, 
uh, which which you're familiar with, which if anyone uh, has listened to uh, not too long ago, some episodes, uh, you might be familiar with Jason Spencer just because of the events that he was putting on in Phoenix that I, I announced a few episodes ago. Um, how how were those events, by the way? Uh, those the, the last two events, so I did a, a presentation, just kind of a, a fermentation one on one presentation at uh, Whole Foods in Paradise Valley, and that one well, it was it was a it was a good response. It's a smaller Whole Foods, more of a neighborhood type of one, but we had about fifteen people attend that. And then I did a workshop at uh, the Chandler Whole Foods, and um, had uh, about ten people show up for that. And that was a paid workshop. We did kimchi, we did kimchi camp, and uh, made uh, four different types of kimchi. And at that what and you've done workshops, I and mean, that was my first workshop that I'd done, and it was so much fun. I can't wait to do more of those. So really appreciate uh, you know you being able to use this as a platform to to you know maybe help if there's any people in Phoenix that listen uh, to help get the word out there. Yeah, get in contact with. Uh, well, I guess even before we get into this this event section, I mean, what's the best way for people to to get in contact with you? Are you on any social media or otherwise? Yeah, um, so I, I have a website. It's called Ferment Fanatics. Um, you know, kind of the idea that you know, for for fans of fermentation, and that's where I put some recipes on there. I put some stuff about some upcoming events, and I also have a, a Facebook page, Ferment Fanatics, and uh, I'll also put on there for what upcoming events that I have coming. So. Yeah, that, I think that will, that will be great. And so, yes, if I don't know how many people are listening that are in the Phoenix area, but if you are, then definitely get in touch. Um, and in, in regard to anywhere else, there are some upcoming events. And so the first one, which you probably already heard about a lot is that I've mentioning the Reedsburg Fermentation Fest, which is pretty huge. And that's why I keep mentioning it. it's this weekend and next weekend. Throughout the week, there will be art installations in the rural countryside of Wisconsin that will be also interesting to go see. And, and some of those are very related with food and agriculture as well. But October 4th, I'll be doing a um, cultured milk class. And then the following weekend, I'll be doing uh, kombucha and one more based around uh, the fermentation, everyday fermentation handbook. And so like the, it's, it's really going to be worth going to. And I know like last year there was something like 12,000 people. So it's a relatively large event. So definitely get there. If, uh, migrate to the area, if you're anywhere in the Midwest, it's, it's, it's worth a visit. Um, and, uh, if you're in San Diego, definitely check out some of fermenters club, uh, upcoming workshops for the next couple of months. There's kombucha and miso events as well. How this is where my geography of the United States is going to, uh, become horrible. How far are you from like, um, you know, places like San Diego or whatnot? Are you pretty far? No, it's well, it's about a five hour drive. Okay, so that's um, not kind of a, it's a yeah. I go over there probably three or four times a year. I got some very close friends that live over there, and uh, I love San Diego. Okay, so yeah, it's, have you ever done any fermentation stuff out there? No, I haven't. Um, and usually when I'm out there, I'm just you know kind of out there for a weekend and stuff. So I mean, if you call if you call going to um, you know some of the breweries uh, fermentation events, I you know, yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. People cannot forget breweries. Uh, if you've gone to a bakery, you've done fermented things. Uh, coffee, you know, it all yeah. counts. Uh, but you should uh, it, if you go out there often enough, you should uh, get in contact with Austin over at Fermenters Club as well, and anyone else in that area too. I mean, he's doing great work out in San Diego. Yeah, um, I was thinking about that. So uh, yeah, I'll definitely um, you know try to look him up and and uh, i'm just fascinated at you know the type of response that uh, people have to this so well then here's the other uh part of geography i'm pretty darn sure you're a lot farther away from this um but austin how far from austin long ways okay so it's not even close 
Yeah, no, that's, I think by car, it's 18 hour drive, something like that. So that would take a commitment for anyone from Phoenix to get to the Austin fermentation festival. Yes. But Austin's awesome. Hey, everyone should attend. If you're in the area, Austin fermentation festival is in, uh, November. It's, I do not have the date in front of me, but it's in November. Um, and it's going to be at 11 to four and I'll put the link in the show notes. So that will, that will be definitely there, but there is all Sander Katz is going to be there as well. So that's a, that's a good reason for anyone that's relatively close to Austin to get out there. There's the early bird tickets available until October 15th for an after party with a little meet and greet with Sander. So definitely worth going. The, the event itself is free, but the after party is worth probably going to as well. Um, other ones going on. There's a creative kimchi playground in Chicago. Uh, Andrea from edible alchemy foods. First time I met or saw her was in the, the kimchi challenge at the good food festival a few years ago where Sander and her were both judges uh, for a kimchi challenge. So definitely a kimchi workshop to check out in Chicago. And then the Brooklyn fermentation festival again is November 15th. So check that one out in conjunction with fermentation on wheels being a part of that. So Tara, remember her from an episode in the in the past that we had her on. So definitely worth checking that one as well. Anything else that you know of or any, I've I've got, uh, I've got a couple events coming up. Um, October 14th, I will be doing a presentation at the whole foods market on Camelback and 20th street in Phoenix. And I will also, we haven't set a date, but doing a pickling workshop and I may be experimenting with doing um, one of these vegetable brines because I'm looking at doing like um, type of, different types of cooked vegetables that we will pickle through lacto fermentation. So I'll keep you posted on that, Brandon. That one would, be, I'd be very interested to hear uh, when that is, when you get that going. And then also how that turns out, because that is something I have never explored. Um, so yeah, this, this has been a good topic today because it's got me thinking about all these different ways, cooking, uh, killing all the bacteria and then inoculating with new ones. Yep. Sounds delicious. So, well, do you have anything in closing? Any, any other thoughts? Um, no, that's about it. And, and, uh, thank you. And, uh, a big hello to everybody out there and firm up land. So, uh, really appreciate this opportunity, Brandon. Hey, thanks for being on the show. And you'll find all of these links that we've been talking about in the show notes. And those will be at firmup.com slash podcast slash 85. And then you can find us at firmup.com on Twitter at firmup at Facebook at firmup and anywhere else at firmup. And until next time, firm up.